Welcome back to The Sounds of Sand. Today we bring you two talks recorded in front of a live audience at the Sand Conference from 2016 and 2011 by Christian mystic and theologian Richard Rohr. And the talks are entitled Christianity and Unknowing and Christianity and the Meaning of Enlightenment. And Father Richard Rohr is a globally recognized ecumenical teacher bearing witness to the universal awakening within Christian mysticism and the perennial tradition. He is a Franciscan priest of the New Mexican province, and he's founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation, CAC, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And Father Richard is the author of numerous books, including Everything Belongs, Adam's Return, The Naked Now, Breathing Underwater, Falling Upward, Immortal Diamond, and Eager to Love, The Alternative Way of St. Francis of Assisi. These are two really beautiful talks, and we're really happy to be sharing them with you today on The Sounds of Sand presented by Science and Non-Duality. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. So I don't have uh, very long, but let me share just a little bit, and I hope it can be helpful. And as you might have read in the abstract, I think Christianity once understood non-duality, although we never used that word. The word in, in uh, mainline was unitive consciousness. Uh, but non-dual describes it very well. When I wrote my book, The Naked Now, where I was trying to introduce this word to Christians, I expected a whole lot of pushback because, oh, Richard's become a Buddhist or a Hindu, as if that's bad, but they, uh, that would have been the criticisms I would have expected. And they never came. And it's almost as if it was a liberation for a lot of Christians, at least a lot of Christians who were sincerely seeking. So I'm going to give you, and I hope it won't be boring or belabored, but a little bit of the history of how we had it, how we lost it, why we lost it, and why it's being so magnificently retrieved in our time. But it's still unknown to the vast, vast majority of Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant Christians. Especially, I have to say, the Protestant tradition, because it came along so late, wasn't its fault, but uh, it's no accident we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Lutheran Reformation, of course, this year. Um, it was simultaneous with the invention of the printing press. Huh? And we're all historical accidents in so many ways, but of course, the printing press made us for 500 years enamored with words. And words are inherently dualistic. That isn't a put down, I'm using words right now, we need words, but they are to distinguish this from that. And once your concentration is to use words to distinguish yourself or clarify your thought, uh, you move toward 
argumentativeness, uh, endless clarification of what did that word really mean. And so we see that the older traditions were much more, uh, as we just heard so beautifully, body-based, intuitive-based, based in poetry and dance and music and art, all primitive religion, which now we see maybe was not so primitive, uh, seem to understand this, that we have to move to a different level of consciousness. Now I'm convinced the very word prayer, which of course all of us have heard all of our lives, but originally meant a different operating system. Christians will still say, you know, I'm going to pray about that. Now, I think what they mean is I got to get out of my argumentative, dualistic, egocentric mind and put on a mind that is bigger, broader, more accessible as the heart math solution teaches us. Uh, but those became pretty much separated, even though what you were just beautifully talking about, the heart, that's the desert fathers in the second and third century. This was our own Christian tradition. It's amazing how much they use the word heart. And yet, in our time, heart became associated with Valentine's Day and infatuation and emotion and anything but integration. It was another kind of over-subjectivity instead of the place of integration, uh, holding together the body and the mind and the soul and the person, as it were. So anyway, I don't think I see any evidence that Jesus... Uh, ever systematically taught what we would call non-dual thinking. But he did exemplify it, right? And that's even better, huh? When he says, I and the Father are one, his classic line of unitive consciousness with God, uh, he says it without any apology. And of course, even then, he is called bad names for making such a daring assertion. When he says things like, uh, my Father's sun shines on the bad and the good. His rain falls on the just and the unjust. Uh, or when you must love your neighbor as yourself, what you do to the least of the brothers and sisters you do to, to me. It's, it's unitive consciousness all over the place. Uh, and how we, in organized Christianity, got in trouble is we largely read, and I mean largely, overwhelmingly, uh, read the words of Jesus, uh, who was talking non-dually, mystically, if I now use those words almost interchangeably, uh, we read him with a dualistic mind, an argumentative mind, which meant uh, from the get-go to misunderstand what he was talking about. So we see the first great, I think, separation from the much more, you, you read Jesus' metaphors and examples, 90-some percent of them are all nature-based. Huh? He isn't an academic teacher using concepts and ideas like I'm afraid I'm doing now. But he is referring to the natural world and using this to exemplify universal truths. Much closer to what we later disparagingly called paganism. But the Pagani, and I'm sure this is from Italian, or uh, yeah, probably, simply meant the people who lived out in the country. It wasn't a put down. It was that the cities got Christianized first, and those who lived out in the country were the Pagani or the pagans. Uh, and that for centuries became a put down. Well, he's a pagan, which usually meant he or she was a moral degenerate or something, uh, but it actually might mean someone who's much closer to what we later call natural theology. Huh? But 
After the word, uh, we moved into anything but natural theology. It was in many ways very unnatural. Uh, so we have Jesus exemplifying it. And uh, the first great compromise, if I can call it that, and I'm sure you've heard of this from various preachers, and although Roman Catholics, like I am, usually don't admit it, but our first great compromise was called the Constantinian Compromise. That in around 313, we move from the catacombs to the basilicas. We move from the lower class to the upper class. We move to an identification with power and money and war. That's why we were called Roman Catholics, because the Roman Empire pretty much took over the show. And we needed an imperial god who could unify Europe and, and the Middle East. And you know what? This name, and I'm, I emphasize name, this name Jesus fit the bill, even though it had almost nothing to do with his teaching, and in many ways was absolutely contrary to his teaching. I mean, any of you familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, you can't make that by any stretch of the imagination into an imperial worldview or an exclusionary worldview, you know, or a mental worldview. Uh, it's, it's entirely intuitive, love-based, nature-based, community-based, unitive consciousness, if you will. But uh, that's when uh, the, uh, Maurizio mentioned monks uh, were actually called friars. Doesn't make a great deal of difference, but the friars lived in the city with the people. The monks usually lived out in the country. Uh, but it all starts after that great compromise in 313, where we move into the upper class, into imp imperial thinking. And so huge amounts of uh, Western Christians go off to the deserts of Egypt, Syria, Palestine, and Cappadocia, which is, which is Eastern Turkey. And there is where Christianity flourished, plus these little outlying places like Ireland and Scotland, which were not a part of the Roman Empire. That's why there's so much fascination with much more nature-based Celtic spirituality today. It wasn't Romanized. So when the Protestant Reformation comes along, and it was much needed, I'm not here to put that down at all, it brought a, a kind of critical thinking to a Catholicism that didn't have, at that point, much self-critical thinking. Uh, it, uh, it moved us in a, in a very different direction, you might, you might say. Uh, but I would say after the, the desert period, what we would call unitive thinking or non-dual thinking or the balancing of knowing with not knowing is only systematically taught in some monasteries where it maintains uh, some form of identity. And it was usually taught in this way, and this might be a, a central point that'll help you understand. Forgive these two big words, but there, was, there were two main lines of spirituality inside of formal Christianity. One was called the cataphatic way, whereby you knew through words and concepts and ideas and clarity, through light, through knowing. But it was balanced in this magnificent biblical concept of faith, uh, which evolved inside the Bible itself. It was balanced by the apophatic way, which means knowing by not knowing, or not needing to know, knowing through darkness. 
we got to be honest. The whole mystical tradition of knowing through darkness that we see in Dionysius in the early centuries, in the cloud of unknowing in the 14th century, for the last 500 years, once we got into the food fights of the Reformation, and that's what they were, all right? <laughs> we're right and you're wrong. Our denomination is saved and your denomination is not saved. I'm gonna make a strong statement, but I don't think it's much of an overstatement. That was the death of the contemplative mind. Once you need to prove that you're right and someone else is wrong, that you're the in-group and they're the out-group, what you have is the dominance of ego. And once the ego is center stage, there is no possibility, there's no possibility of contemplation. It's, it's all about you. It's all self-referential and thinking declines. And let's be honest, we're seeing it in our present politics. Just could we have imagined that human, civil, public conversation could go this low? But that's all you have left when you have dualistic thinking paramount. In fact, it's the only game in town. As a Franciscan, as a priest, it tells me religion has not been doing its work. Uh, we are not transforming this culture. And the Judeo-Christian tradition is still supposed to be the foundational religion of Western civilization, where, whether it really is or whether it ever was, I don't know. I'm not here to make that point. But, you know, a, a civilization cannot survive if it is actively involved in, in hatred toward its own spirituality. Uh, and that's pretty much where we're at now, but for understandable reasons. Uh, that, um, that it just wasn't doing the job. It was more what spiral dynamics would call tribal thinking, blue level consciousness, where uh, it wasn't about being a transformed person, it was about belonging to a tribe, huh? And we were the Catholic tribe, some of you were the Protestant tribe, some of you were the Jewish tribe, and that became uh, the be-all and the end-all, affirming the boundaries of your tribe, why it was right, uh, which left us at a pretty low level of knowing. So, uh, again, I want to repeat, I didn't develop it enough a moment ago, but when you have balanced knowing with not knowing and not needing to know. The ordinary arrogance of the mind, which by the way, I think Genesis warns us against. You know, there's a most unlikely line in the creation story of the Jewish people where Yahweh tells them, you know, uh, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will most surely die. Now, that's a really shocking statement. When, I mean, I, I had four years of moral theology. I got a degree in eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you understand? <laughs> and what, I think it was a warning to tell a religion, you better be humble about your knowledge of who's right and who's wrong, who's in and who's out. Warning right in the first chapters of the Bible against eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, we've been eating of it for centuries, you know, voraciously. And when, when you only have the cataphatic way, certitude, clarity, concepts of, and opinions about which I can be right and you can be wrong, you have the death of darkness, non-knowing. I have to say the only place where that was consistently taught was in the mystics, huh? 
the mystics, uh, they, they revel in people like John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila. You know, they revel in the language of darkness. Huh? They called it learned ignorance. Learned ignorance, isn't that interesting, huh? The freedom not to have to know, in fact, gives space around your knowing that allows you to move to the heart, to the intuitive. But this arrogance around knowing pretty much has controlled the field. You know, I'm sure you've heard that line that if you want to tell a lie and get away with it, tell a really big lie. We've had some evidence of that in the last, <laughs> in the last year, you know. And ironically, people are more ready to believe really big lies than little ones. I, I don't know the logic of that, but <coughs> that was certainly true in the whole degeneration of the biblical notion of faith. When faith meant comfortably not knowing, and we turned that around 180 degrees into being certain about everything, huh? which has reached its low point in what we call fundamentalism, which is not just true in Christianity, but really it's re researched in all of the major world religions. Huh? In, this, in this confused and confusing world, the need for um, certitude, so I know that I'm on solid ground and I'm purposeful and, and smart, uh, that's, that's where we're at. And I think why so much relig organized religion in general Christianity in particular, has just lost the respect of, of a lot of, and when I use the word thinking people, I, I'm not meaning they gotta be highly intelligent or academic, but just people who are using what I'd call Christian common sense. But we weren't trained in Christian common sense, you know? We were trained in ideology which overrode the heart, the intuitive, the, the communal, the, the unitive. So uh, we pretty much, you know, I was able to talk to Google yesterday, you know, and I was absolutely amazed. You know, Jesus has a line, I think it's in Luke's gospel, where he says, the children of this world are wiser in their ways than are the children of light. Talk about a critique of religion, huh? Those who think they have the light, he said, sometimes those who don't make any claims I, I'm sure many of you know more about Google than I do, but it was just like, yesterday was like walking in a different universe. How, uh, how could all the rules of business be so different and have so many happy people and so many self-initiating staff and creative and excited staff riding their bicycles around the campus? Uh, this is a different model for knowing. And I don't see any large religious symbols on the campus. Um, but I'll tell you, my, my recent book is on the Trinity, where I, 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 and I wanna mention that for a reason. Uh, see, the law of three was made to order to undo the law of two. Two, two is always oppositional. Two is always antagonistic. Whenever your mind makes a distinction between Republican, Democrat, black, white, gay, straight, American, non-American, <clears throat> we can show that within a nanosecond, you choose sides. It's, it's just the dang nature of the mind. And it thinks it's smart <coughs> because it chose one side. Huh? This is where we're at right now. And, and it's just not, not getting us anywhere. So, uh, I forgot where I was going with that point. What was I about to say? Uh, doesn't matter. If, uh, 
Trinity. Yes, yes. Okay, my <laughs> God. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, the foundational Christian doctrine about the nature and shape of God, and we just made it into a mathematical conundrum which we couldn't resolve, so we shelved the whole thing. And I remember the Irish nuns who taught me, and she held up the shamrock in the third grade and says, God is like this. And then she said, don't think about it, all right? <laughs> Now, actually, this Irish nun was rather correct, really, because it, it is unthinkable, just like we learn about consciousness and the nature of the universe. But um, the first word, and this, if you haven't maybe been exposed to formal Christian theology, it might strike you as heretical or unusual, but um, it took the, the early, that early Christian period three centuries to unpackage this gobbledygook language of Jesus where he's talking about being one with the Father, but talking to the Father as if the Father's over there, giving you the Spirit, but being one with the Spirit. The Spirit is in the Father, the Father gives you the Spirit. I, when, I, when I read uh, you know, John's Gospel as a priest, I can just see all Catholics, their eyes just glaze over. I don't know what he is talking about. Well, the whole Christian world didn't know what he was talking about, but after three centuries in Cappadocia, three brilliant theologians, two named Gregory, one named Basil, they finally said, well, here's the best we can do. God is like a circle dance. Peri means around. Choresis or choreography means dance. Huh? If I said that to you today without quoting the third century or fourth century, you'd think I was really flaky, wouldn't you? Huh? God is a circle dance. Well, the reason we can talk that way and receive at least a partial receptivity is because of quantum physics uh, and everything you've been talking about here. Suddenly God as a flow, God as a communion, God as an intercommunion, God as an interdependence, not a particle but the relationship between the particles. Uh, my God, Christians had this in code form all along and never recognized it. I'm predicting in, in my book, The Divine Dance, that that uh, the next century will be the rediscovery of the real shape of God. And the irony is, I know if you weren't raised Christian, or even if you were, uh, to talk about Trinity must sound like super, super, super Christian stuff. <laughs> Actually, it isn't, because most Christians don't understand it. <laughs> and in fact, it opens up the entire world of interfaith dialogue, because we have the Father as the unknowable one, total mystery. We have the Spirit as the indwelling one incarnate along with Jesus into the physical universe. We have God flowing everywhere between knowability and unknowability, between psyche and physicality. Uh, it suddenly is a, actually a rather talkable notion of God. Whereas when I grew up, I mean, listen to our TV. Uh, how often have you heard the phrase, on American TV, the man upstairs. It's just a throw, the man upstairs, the man upstairs. And we're supposed to accept that. Uh, and most Christians don't even critique it. It's absurd. <laughs> At first he's male and he's almost always a white male. Usually has a nice white beard too, you know. Uh, uh, he's gotta deal with the woman downstairs. <laughs> 
It's just, it's unworkable. It's unworkable, you know? And then, <coughs> you know, I, just, I was the last generation of priests that had to learn Latin. And you probably know the, la the Latin word for God is Deus. D-E-U-S. Does that sound anything like Z-E-U-S? <laughs> of course it does. It's the same concept. It's the same word. We basically, again, along with uh, the whole Greco-Roman Empire, and it gave us many wonderful things, but our concept of God never moved much beyond Zeus. <laughs> and, and Zeus was uh, throwing down thunderbolts at people he didn't like. You know, we just ch ch differentiated who the ones were we didn't like. Pagans and witches and women and heretics and sinners and every culture and every century decided on a different sinner. You know, if you look at all, always who were the sinners was different. But we had to scapegoat somebody because that keeps a group together. And when you're at the tribal level, that's what you want to do. You want to know you're right. You want to hold your knowing in a safe enclave so you don't expose it to any non-knowing, <laughs> whereas uh, uh, the majority of the mystery of the Trinity is unknowable. Hmm? But we thought we knew God. So we sort of pushed Jesus into the place of the Trinity. You know, I'm not a heretic in saying this, although to some of you it'll sound like it. To, as Christians day, do, to formally say Jesus is God is bad theology, is incorrect. The Trinity in Christian theology is God, all right? And when you pull Jesus out of this and put him up on a big throne that looks like Zeus, you no longer have a dynamic universe, really. <laughs> you no longer have a God who is in the flow of everything, but a being instead of being itself. Now, my early Franciscan tradition, a uh, name you probably never heard of, a man named John Scotus from Scotland, taught at Oxford. Uh, he taught of the univocity of being. You may speak with one voice, univocity. You may speak with one voice of the being of the earth, of the waters upon the earth, the plants that grow from the earth, uh, the animals that live on the earth, the humans that live on the earth, and the angels and God. The entire chain of being could be spoke of with one consistent voice as being. Now, if you Protestants think that's heresy, go to Acts 17. What does Paul say to the smart people uh, on the Areopagus in Athens? He says, God is the one in whom you live and move and have your very being. So we thought of God as a being, usually an old man upstairs sitting on a throne, throwing down thunderbolts, which made, created a very unsafe universe, by the way. I, <laughs> really, <coughs> very unsafe. If God isn't on your side foundationally, is God, if God isn't in, uh, the ultimate participant. So what Trinitarian doctrine does is move us from a God as a critical spectator, big C, big S, critical spectator, to a God who is ultimate participant, big U, big P, ultimate participant. There's nothing to fight about anymore. There's nothing to prove. There's nothing you need to prove, you just need to get into the dance, you know? I was glad you also used the word flow, Deborah. Uh, that's probably the word I use in the divine dance more than anything. And usually, uh, in the first, you, you do this all without any degree in theology. You're around someone five minutes, 
and you can tell whether they're in the flow or whether they're resisting it and blocking it huh? and, and holding you at arm's length and holding themselves inside. You all know that. Huh? And, and you don't have to have any orthodoxy tests to see people who are inside what I'd call the Trinitarian flow and people who are not. So, to try to sum this up, I hope I haven't been all over the place, but uh, we have a God who is unknowable, and yet Christians would believe because human beings need a face, a form, a love, a smile that they can touch, as the first letter of John says, that they can look upon. Christians believe that this formless one, uh, this unknowable one, became in Jesus knowable and lovable. Now, you don't have to accept that, but you got to know that's what Christian belief is. Huh? That we needed a moment of knowability to balance out the supreme unknowability of the Father and the Holy Spirit, who, who, are, who are like the space between the particles in the atom. You know, you can't capture them, you can't measure them, you can't control them. You know, I live in New Mexico, and, and uh, of course, as you know, that's where the bomb was put together. And on July 16, 45, it was dropped south of Albuquerque, where I live. When Robert uh, Robert Oppenheimer observed the, uh, the great explosion. Uh, he, he said this site should be called Trinity Site. And only years later did he himself uh, wonder why he did that. He said, I just knew the place where we had undone the three uh, at atomic particles uh, was somehow connected to this mystery of Trinity. Huh? That if this is the basic building block of everything, the law of three, which is always dynamic, I'm not trying to make you into a Christian, I'm trying to help you respect dynamism as opposed to oppositionalism. Yeah? And that was the real point. And he said when we, when we undo that, when we undo the Trinity, the, the dynamic flow of creation, the, the universal ecosystem that everything is, circulatory system, gravitational pulls, and, and sexuality. Everything is attracted to everything, as so many of our mystics said. Huh? Everything loves everything and moves toward union with it. When we stop thinking that way, I'm afraid Western Christianity largely became a PhD in dualistic thinking. Huh? And that's what you've grown up with, I'm afraid. Huh? And if some of you with great sincerity or great intelligence actually found yourself reacting against it or moving beyond it, I have to say, I can understand that. Uh, I was just lucky enough that the Franciscans gave me a, a nature-based, thanks to Francis himself, uh, spirituality. A man who could speak of brother sun, sister moon, sister water, brother fox, it was not a subject-object world for Francis, as it should have been for any mystic. It was meeting reality subject to subject, center to center, where you grant mutuality, you grant subjectivity, you grant respect and reverence, and you let the animals talk back to you. You know, now if I'd say that to most mainline Catholics, I'm sorry to say, I wouldn't be invited back, you know. <laughs> And yet uh, they all have their sentimental little pictures of St. Francis talking to the birds and preaching to the fish and everything. 
which he did. <laughs> you see, once you're inside the enchanted universe where everything is granted subjectivity, let me tell you something I just told the people at Google yesterday. And this might be the biggest payoff of all. You're never lonely again. I deal as a counselor with so much bad effect of human loneliness, human cut-offness, and in many ways it seems to be increasing on this earth. Huh? When you can grant mutuality, conversation, dialogue, dignity, use any of those words, to a leaf, to a lizard, to the sky, uh, and, and see this is the divine dance. Now if you're Jewish, how many of the Psalms don't say that? The mountains clap their hands, the rivers leap for joy, <laughs> that this whole natural universe is the first Bible. And that's what the early Franciscans taught. And they said if we murdered and mangled and manipulated and destroyed, which we've largely done, the first Bible, how would we possibly have the skills to reverence and use correctly the written Bible? Hmm? And of course the first Bible, seems to have been written about 14 billion years before the second one. So I always say, did God have nothing to do for 14 billion years? <laughs> God had nothing to say. The message was uh, we're just waiting for Roman Catholics to appear, you know? <laughs> come on, come on. Uh, we're not operating out of a scarcity model. And, and unfortunately, my Protestant brothers and sisters, you didn't reform us in that at all. <laughs> In fact, it became more individualistic, more righteousness talking about moral behavior will make this God who is Zeus like you. Hmm? It just, it was an unworkable proposition. So I, I suppose you're hearing me and saying, is he Christian? Or, uh, <laughs> I'm actually very traditional Christian and very critical of of Christianity at the same time. I, I hope your non-dual mind will allow you to hold those two together. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you very much. The Christian meaning of enlightenment, as I was asked to talk about, has defined enlightenment in such a, a very, very individualistic, tiny uh, way that really offered little gift to the world. I don't know all the historical reasons for that. My guess is, and that's all I can say, is that both, both in Eastern Orthodoxy uh, and in Roman Catholicism, we aligned ourselves with empire. And, and uh, once you align the message of a spiritual teacher with imperial thinking, there's a whole bunch of questions you can't ask anymore. Uh, and you can only see what you're told to look for. And if you weren't told to look for it, you, you can't see it. Uh, I don't know if you've uh, uh, attended any of Brian McLaren's workshops, and maybe some of you have also seen this video, where uh, he tells one side of the room to observe uh, how many times the people dressed in black throw the ball to the people dressed in white. And he says, this side of the room, you count how many times the people dressed in white throw it to the... So you're just intent on winning, because, you know, I want to get the right number. 
And uh, after we've all counted and, and seen the, oh, maybe it's two-minute video, uh, he asks, and it's amazing how many people still get the, the number wrong, but then he says, how many of you noted that during this passing of the ball back and forth, uh, a gorilla walked across the scene? <laughs> and honestly, in a group much bigger than this, he did it at one of our conferences in Albuquerque, uh, it wasn't more than 2% of the people noted a gorilla. He shows it again, and it's quite obvious. Every, how did I not see? Because we were focusing on one thing, we really did not see. Our eyes did not see something else. Well, I think once the gospel of Jesus got aligned with the Roman Empire in the West, with Byzantium in the East, uh, there were a whole bunch of gorillas we just didn't see, you know? <laughs> Uh, it was all uh, individual soul salvation. And that's the word, pretty much, that came to substitute for, for uh, Jesus' clear talking. If you want to carry through the metaphor of enlightenment, it, it's rather clear, especially in John's Gospel. But we didn't ask about enlightenment, uh, even for the individual, much less for the corporate. Huh? Uh, what, what we settled for were what I call belief systems and belonging systems. Right? We, we, when you want to unite people, which is what empire wants, you want everybody to be conformed into one worldview, you really are threatened by any notion of, of inner freedom or, or inner awareness or consciousness you, you would rather, to be perfectly honest, have people unconscious. <laughs> and so you settle for belonging systems. And we look at most of the wars of, of Europe uh, and Christian nations, and they've all been between groups that both consider themselves Christian, <laughs> but you can see that the, the Christianity was identified, if at all, with their nationhood, with their rights as a people, or their, their image as a people, and continuing into the First World War, and, and in some ways even the Second, that uh, the group you belonged to, the group you fought for, was your identity. <laughs> that was your personhood. And uh, even the church, the churches, were largely content with this, uh, we were more Italian or German or French or Spanish than we were Catholic, even though the word Catholic means universal. We, we clearly never got it. Huh? Uh, it was much more our identification with the group. So let me just, so you don't think I'm just making this up. Uh, let's, let's go back to Jesus. He still is the founder of the firm of Western Christianity, you know, uh, even though you wouldn't think it. And, and I, I have to say this not in any sense an anti-Protestant statement, but in, in most ways Protestantism did not reform Catholicism in these regards. It was asking the same narrow questions and tied into the same European uh, imperial worldview in, in most cases. Jesus, to use the metaphor of light, calls himself in John's Gospel, my word is the true light that enlightens all peoples. In John 8, I am the light of the world. 
Anyone who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light too. And what he says of himself, this is not usually pointed out to Christians, it seems to me. He, in John 8, he does say, I am the light of the world. But in Matthew 5, he says, you are the light of the world. I don't know why we teachers never pointed that out. Uh, you know, we exalt Jesus, but always feel to exalt Jesus, we got to negate humanity, which is, that's what religion does. Religion is always looking for one absolute, one highly exalted absolute, because that tends to hold the group together. Uh, but we don't want to say what Jesus said in John 5.14, you are the light of the world too. I've never heard a preacher in all my years in the church connect those two phrases and show that, that they in some ways contradict one another or not contradict actually compliment. Now, uh, in Matthew 6, here's where he's really moving in the direction that uh, we would now call either shadow work or, or uh, a capacity to have a different set of eyes. And now enlightenment is something I participate in. Let me try Matthew 6.22. The lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye is sound... Your whole body will be filled with light. But if your eye is diseased, your whole body, in fact, will be filled with darkness. In fact, if your inner lamp is, in fact, darkness, what darkness there will be. So, I mean, this could be straight Buddhist teaching. How you see is what you see. And it's all about cleaning the lens. And if you don't clean the lens... I see this in teaching contemplation. Most people do not see things as they are. They see things as they are. <laughs> and we, just, we have not given uh, Western civilization this kind of wisdom. We just haven't. It, you, you could remain terribly, terribly narcissistic, greedy, vain, egocentric, but just believe the doctrines of the church. Uh, and this was all the way to the top, you know. You, you didn't demand transformation. So when you emphasize belief systems and belonging, belief systems, by the way, ask almost nothing of you, right? It's really no skin off your back to say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, you know. I believe if you're evangelical, the Bible is the inerrant Word of God, huh? Or if you're Catholic, I believe that Mary was always a virgin. Great, you know, I... <laughs> so what? <laughs> so what? It has, so we really created fast food religion. It really did. Yeah, oh, and you felt you were some high-minded, transformed person because you believed doctrines. And again, Protestantism did not reform Catholicism. It just changed the belief systems and the emphasis. We're going to emphasize this instead of that. Belonging systems, well, we talked about that. So what, what loses out when you emphasize belief systems and belonging systems is transformational systems. <laughs> is this really changing perception? Now, I have to say, one of the wonderful things the Franciscans gave me we had to study four years of philosophy before they put the scriptures in our hand. 
And I think that is what kept a lot of us from going fundamentalist. And we always feel sorry for the denominations that were, where you, you give young preachers the word of God. You know, you inflate the young ego with, I have the ultimate power, but he doesn't know how to think yet. And I'm not trying to make this overly rational, because we know that's been much of the problem too. But the very first course I took in 1962, had four years of philosophy, was a, a, a course, some of you probably took it too, a terribly ugly word, it's called epistemology, you know? <laughs> and epistemology is how do you know what you think you know? <laughs> We've been hearing about this all, really. The East emphasized epistemology. How do you know what you know? What is consciousness? How do you become aware? We went through all the different theories of knowledge and so forth. But in fact, in, in the real common order of Western Christianity, it was a, a small percentage that studied epistemology. Mostly you just dove into metaphysics. In other words, not how do you know what you know, but what is the truth? <laughs> And this running to people, usually young people, when they began their studies, into this lust for certitude, this lust for metaphysical explanation without much observation. <laughs> observation was not encouraged. Uh, it was giving people answers before they even largely asked the question. We, we American Catholics grew up on a terrible little book called the Baltimore Catechism. I'm sure some of you had it forced on you, too. And we now find out, you know, this was written by some Monsignor from New Jersey, nothing against Monsignors from New Jersey, but he had, he had no major degree in theology, you know. A catechism a whole, is a whole system of question and answer, question and answer. Yeah, I love to point out, I still have my dog-eared copy that I often refer to. If you go back, any of you who might have it, uh, your Baltimore Catechism, question 16 is this. Question 16 is, where is God? And in fact, I'm going to find out who the true Catholics are in this room. I'm going <laughs> to ask the question. We had to memorize it. You know, it was all memorized, you know. And you all know the answer. Where is God? No, God is everywhere. You're not good Catholics. Right? <laughs> the, que the answer is God is everywhere. Really, that's pretty good. The, the Monsignor from New Jersey was not all bad. But in fact, he, he lost it right after question 16. <laughs> the other 326 questions and answers in the Baltimore Catechism really go out of their way to say, well, we didn't really mean that. God really isn't everywhere. God's only in the Roman Catholic Church. So all the rest are heretics, you know. And he's really only in the bread in the tabernacle, which is locked up <laughs> uh, in the church, and only if the priest was in good standing when he celebrated Mass. So you see what you end up with. God is hardly anywhere. I got to... <laughs> And we priests control it. We control it. We got the key to the tabernacle. as we. <laughs> uh, and these were all well-intentioned, sincere, good people. Many of them had a better heart than I do. But were just given very, very limited worldviews, you know. 
And this is the temptation of all religion, that we decide where the sacred is and where the sacred is not. That's what it comes down to. And once you're in control of that, you're in control. <laughs> you're, I mean, this, is, this has been priesthood in every civilization since the beginning of time, deciding what is sacred and what is not sacred by purity codes and can't touch this, can't eat that. Uh, it's all divvying up the world. Well, I'm afraid we did the same with, with our whole understanding or our lack of understanding of enlightenment. So, to get back to the theme, what, what happened was that the word salvation, which is used a lot in the New Testament, sort of started substituting for enlightenment, all right? And the worst piece of that is that it was all pushed off into the next world. At that point, you have no transformational religion anymore. It's all, I'm going to use a cynical phrase, but you'll understand, it's all fire insurance. Huh? <laughs> and, and, re <laughs> and religion is paying your fire insurance dues, you know, <laughs> or whatever they might be. Uh, and if God, if God really, and I do know some of the metaphors in the New Testament lend themselves to this, you know, but if God really is an eternal torturer, I want you to feel that, <laughs> eternal torturer <laughs> to anybody who doesn't like him or her, why would you create mystics? I mean, to put it this way, <laughs> if on your first date, your girlfriend said, if you don't date me again, I will burn you for all eternity. <laughs> would, would any of you go on a second date with this? You've got, uh, no, you got to know, that's what we're dealing with. I'm making it uh, facetious, but it isn't facetious. I've been a priest 42 years and have done enough spiritual direction and confession to realize, my God, this is their real active image of the divine is not allurement or safety or intimacy or enticement. Uh, it's threat. This won't work. This will not work. <laughs> this is, I mean, thank God you left the monastery, Maurizio. It's... Uh, <laughs> And I'm not, I'm not saying that no one got it because I've traveled enough now to enough countries, cultures, religions inside of every monastery, diocese, school, parish, church. There's always a few enlightened people. There always are <laughs> against all the odds. <laughs> There's a few people who just flow with love. You've met them huh? in every religion, in every group. And you say, what did they do right? How did they get it with all the horrible theology that we gave people, you know? But back to the notice, notion of, of salvation. You see, once you have an imperial religion, which is what happened after 313 and Constantine and his friends made us into the established religion of the empire, hmm? you have to have, as I said, conformity, agreement. You want to have one God figure, that holds the nation together. We've, we've seen that in all of history. It, it works very effectively. But most especially, we Christians had to prove and demand that you believe that Jesus is God. Right? 
because he became the effective God figure. It was not really Trinitarian mystical theology anymore. It was very much Jesus. You look in the front of most of European cathedrals, Jesus sitting on a throne like a judge. It's not the meek, humble Jesus that we know anymore. He's operating as a judge and a king who holds together Western civilization. But once you've got to prove that Jesus is God, then all of the, and almost half of the gospel stories are healing stories. Uh, read transformation. Right? You know, uh, but we couldn't hear them as transformational stories where every symbol of the person and the response afterwards is a transformed response. Huh? It's not just medical cures of what's happening in the body. It's clear something is happening in the spirit. But we had to use all of the healing stories in the four Gospels, and there's a lot of them, to say, wow, Jesus works miracles. See, Jesus is God. Now, there's a leap there, of course. <laughs> but that's what the, miracle, the healing stories became. And very often at the end of these healing stories, Jesus will use phrases like, your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you whole, go in peace. You're there. You're okay. It's clear that this salvation he's talking about is present tense. He's not uh, saving someone from the hellfires later. Do you understand? It's clear. Once I, I tell you this, you go back to the Gospels. You say, how did anybody ever miss the point? He, he's not talking about a reward punishment system later. right? He's talking about transformation now enlightenment now, but we weren't told to look for that, so we didn't see it. We really didn't see it. We were just supposed to say, wow, Jesus can do it. Jesus is the real God. All right? Jesus is the true God. Wow, theology doesn't transform people. <laughs> it just inflates them. All right? It just makes them think they're far more along the path than they really are. Huh? thinking because they're riding on the coattails of the true God who can work miracles, then that must mean I'm transformed too. And we all know that has not been the case. So we, we just largely missed it. Now, in all fairness, if you take in the four Gospels, in all the letters of Paul and the other letters, every time the word salvation is used, about one-third of them, seem to be saying salvation, enlightenment, I'm using them almost synonymously, uh, is something that has already happened. It's an objective accomplishment. You are saved, right? Uh, and that's where most of the mystics lean. Huh? This is not something you achieve, you accomplish by any performance principle whatsoever. You are inherently children of God, you, you are recipients of the divine indwelling, your DNA is divine, use whatever language you're comfortable with. But uh, that third of the text clearly lost out, except in the first centuries, the patristic period, we'll come back to that in a minute, and especially in Eastern Orthodoxy. And I, I suppose there's reasons for that. I'm not sure. One-third of the, the texts which talk about salvation or being saved talk about something 
actively happening now. So it has happened. It is happening. You are in the process of being saved. And one-third of them, in all fairness, do say salvation is yet to come, right? But you put them all together, and that's the only way you can read the Bible. If you want to, you know, you can prove anything you want from a line of the Bible. Just pick and choose. <coughs> and they, <coughs> many of them contradict one another clearly. I don't know how people can't see that. <coughs> um, but uh, it's interesting that we, by and large... Catholic and Protestant, chose the last third, those that said it was coming later, all right? And almost entirely ignored, certainly the first third of the statements. Uh, did, was there some self-interest involved in that? You know, as a clergyman, I'm quite aware of what, although my father Francis didn't let us go in this direction, but... but uh, that, you know, clergy can be a career state, you understand? And after a while, it becomes job security. You want them to keep coming back. I mean, they're putting the collection, you understand? It's paying your bills. And so if you keep the message sort of like a carrot on a stick out in front of them, all right, a few more masses on Sunday, a few more commandments to obey, maybe someday on your deathbed uh, you'll, you'll be saved. That has been our underlying bias, not to teach prayer, if I can just use that word, which I think is an alternative processing system, uh, a system that demands enlightenment. We have a bias against teaching contemplation, in my experience, huh? because then you find inner authority, and I mean inner authority in a very healthy, solid, beautiful way, but to the degree we give you inner authority, of course, what happens? You don't rely as much upon the outer authority. Huh? And if you want to hold the, the whole system together by outer authority, obey the Pope, obey the priests, obey the, the Bible, you don't want to lead people to a high degree of inner awareness. Now, in all of, I, I, I don't think that was done maliciously. I really don't. Most of them taught what they were taught. You know, <laughs> you know I, I look at the Catholic Church in particular. Uh, to an outsider, it certainly must look like a monolithic, you know, pyramid, pope and cardinals and archbishops. It certainly is hierarchy. But for those of us inside, of course, we, we're so aware, I in particular, that there's all these satellites around the edge of the pyramid called nuns and Franciscans and Benedictines and Carmelites. And we, we hardly pay attention to <laughs> I think that probably shocks a, a bona fide Catholic, you know, how little we pay attention to the pyramid. I mean, it's just, it's often an embarrassment, you know. We just, <laughs> but we found a way to do what we had to do. When you're a Franciscan, our ideals are or the gospel, and the following of, of Jesus in the way our Father Francis did. It's not about the Pope and the priests and the bishops. Do you understand? In fact, uh, I became a priest, really, because they asked me to, but we, Francis didn't even want us to be priests because he knew once you're a priest, you've got to speak the party line. you got to. And I don't, again, mean that in a terribly malicious way. It's the nature of institution, any, any institution, huh? If you're going to speak for it, 
and protect it, you got to speak for it. We've seen what trouble this has gotten us into in the scandals in the last 20 years. But at any rate, we, we didn't, by and large, teach people what, for the Carmelites, the Franciscans, uh, is the heart of the message, which is to, learn, to develop an inner life <laughs> and to balance all this externalization with all this form with some emptiness, all right? I mean, John of the Cross and the early Franciscans, almost the only message is letting go, detachment, uh, you know, uh, detaching from this world of form and realizing that it's all passing away. It sounds, again, amazingly like the Buddha. So uh, I did mention that, that it held on probably better than anywhere else uh, in, in the Eastern mystics, Eastern orthodoxy, which, of course, as Western churchmen, Catholic or Protestant, we didn't study them nearly as much. You know? Maximus the Confessor, Simeon the New Theologian, uh, the Cappadocian Fathers from Eastern Turkey. Now, they, to the man, and it was mostly men at that point, who at least were the teachers, because uh, they didn't allow women to be educated for the most part, they rather universally believed in a, a doctrine that was called theosis, T-H-E-O-S-I-S. -S, huh? Theosis is translated divinization. Right? They had no doubt that what salvation was was the revelation to the soul, to the individual, of its divine nature. This is clear in the Eastern mystics and fathers of the church up till about the fourth century, you know, when again they get overtaken by the Eastern Empire and Byzantium. Once you start asking those questions, the questions of mysticism are largely marginalized into distant monasteries, hermits, a few people hold on to it, or as I said here earlier today, you almost have to be a hermit because you don't fit in the way the gospel is normally being taught in a Sunday church, which is much more keep them coming back, keep the carrot on the stick out in front of them. Don't really awaken the soul. Don't really give them a lot of self-knowledge, a lot of interiority, because that will undo the process. So the... Uh, the doctrine of theosis, one of the phrases they use most often is from the second letter of Peter, the first chapter. He says, do you not know you are sharers in the divine nature? Now, now that, that's where it was put most directly. Once you get it, you can see that it's intimated, it's hoped for, it's half believed and longed for all throughout the scriptures. But it, it's almost too daring to believe it. You understand? It's, uh, it was called hubris or pride. We instead, with our dualistic minds, reminded humanity of its humanity and Jesus of his divinity. That's what the dualistic mind did to Western Christianity. It utterly split. You carried the human part, which reached really low points. Uh, you know, again, I'm not trying to be against any one of the particular reformers, but you know, some of the Swiss and the Scottish reformers, you begin with absolute 
damnation or, or inferiority. Or, uh, there's no positive anthropology whatsoever. You've got such a huge pit to dr dig out of, do you understand, uh, that most people just never got there. So the effect was this in general, and I'm, 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 I'm telescoping this in too little time, but you're going to get the gist of it, is we substituted morality for mysticism. Uh, that's what we did. And you can almost perfectly correlate. The more moralistic a Christian church is, the less it has encountered the mystical. It's very clear to me. You know, I, I, the Franciscans, we've never... <laughs> we've never been known as the moralists of the church. We're sort of considered lightweight, and, you know, we're always pictured as fat cookie jars and drinking... <laughs> Drinking beer and, and so forth. But in, in <laughs> our wine, if we're in your country. Yeah. Uh, and in great part, it's true. I mean, not all of us. <laughs> but in great, uh, <laughs> in great part, it's true that we're not real moralistic because we just had these magnificent beginnings with Francis and the early Italian Franciscans who who just were utterly free and happy human beings, you know? And we so got inebriated with that, you know, that, that when you get the mystical first, the oneness we've been talking about here, you just don't uh, get preoccupied with this much morality will achieve you, this much uh, heaven, this much morality will make God love you more, this much morality will, will achieve your own superior state, whatever it might be. So moralism very much appeals to the ego, in my opinion. Huh? Even though we fail at it all the time, we like a contest that we can climb in. You know? Grace is always a humiliation for the ego. It really is. When it's just given. And it's given to those people on the street just as much as you. And you're not a bit better than they are. <laughs> And you're not a bit better than Hindus and Buddhists and Protestants. And, oh, we don't want to believe that. Do you understand? No group wants this, this great democratization of the message that, in fact, even the new physics, as we've heard this afternoon, is revealing to us. So what's happening now, as we're, we're reappreciating the mystical tradition, our inherent identity in God, the new seeing that proceeds from this inherent identity in God. Uh, and then uh, the, the nonviolent attitudes then that proceed from that, uh, we're, we're calling theology, or some are calling theology right now, a turn toward participation. And I've heard that word used a lot here, beautifully so. That the religion I grew up with, I was raised in Kansas, all right? was very much not religion as participation, it was religion as observation. You observed the theater of the mass. You observed the doctrines of the church as something to be intellectually assented to. But it wasn't an emphasis upon practices whereby you experienced it for yourself. And this is happening in all of our groups. The moving toward practices whereby you can experience your true state for yourself. Now, since I've been so critical of my own denomination and Christianity in general, I want to say 
that a lot of those have always been there, you know. I mean, I do know people that the, what I call the theater of the mass was also a true sacramental encounter that led them to this experience. <laughs> I mean, the very phrase we use, to go to communion. That's what Catholics describe when they go to Mass. I went to communion. That's very good. <laughs> Do you understand? Is we keep feeding you who you are, and one day you get it. My God, I'm... <laughs> I mean, Augustine said that in the 4th century. He said, we feed you the body of Christ so you will know that you are what you eat. <laughs> that you, you are the body of Christ. That's really good stuff, you know. So I want you to, please, don't, I'm not trying to be an iconoclast. There's, I have no time for that. It's a waste of time to be rebellious and oppositional. I, I just said those things to, to let you know how we did, in many ways, miss the point. But I don't think it was malicious. I don't think it was intentional. I think consciousness just wasn't ready <laughs> in many ways. Why did it take till the last century for Gandhi and Martin Luther King to emerge on a, and to be understood on a broad scale? It seems to me we just weren't ready for it. Huh? And, and that we didn't see, I was so glad when uh, Drew mentioned how, you know, the, the, uh, the corporate name of, of love is justice. Uh, I mean, that was said by Thomas Aquinas and Duns Scotus. But we just did, we weren't ready to, to get it. I mean, justice has not been high on our priority list up to now. I think of how uh, we brought Catholicism to, to Latin America. You know, they're Catholics from Mexico to Argentina. But you say, oh, my God, was there any notion of corporate justice? Was there any notion of compassion uh, when you see the, the immense poverty of all of these Catholic countries? So we're ready for it now. I think we're getting there uh, because uh, the, the, the way I can talk to you is the way I can talk to more and more people, and they don't fight me. The way they did even 40 years ago when I was first ordained, you know. Then uh, people wrote letters to the bishop, you know. <laughs> now maybe some of you will, but <laughs> I doubt it, I doubt it. But I hope I am answering the question of uh, the Christian meaning of enlightenment, I think it's there. It's very parallel and consistent with awareness of who you are and how you see reality from this new ontological identity, who you are hidden with Christ in God, as Paul would say, and the behaviors that proceed from that new pair of eyes. But was it ever the main line position in the normal Sunday churches, I'm sorry to say no, no. But we're getting there. So thank you for hearing. And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAND content, available exclusively to SAND members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify, and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.